Good morning. Just looking all around and making sure I make eye contact with everybody. Everybody doing all right today? Yeah? Nice. Yeah, you're here. You must be, right? <laughs> cool. I'm super excited to be here. Um, it's, been, it's been a good long road the past few months getting to know the elders in the search committee and some of you too that um, maybe aren't a part of those two groups, but um, it's just so exciting to kind of see this culmination come up and just be able to preach with you uh, God's word this morning. And so um, I'd like to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to read from verses 26 through 31. I'm going to give you a minute to get there. Um, as you're doing that, I always like to say um, the most important thing we're going to do today is not listen to a sermon. It's not even sing the songs. It's not even shake hands. It's going to be reading God's word. It's going to be hearing God speak to us. And um, th so this here, in my estimation of a church service, is the, the pinnacle, the high point here is where we look to the Lord for what we need to know today. Um, so again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. I will read it, and then I will pray, and we'll see what happens after that. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Father, this morning we ask that you would make the word real to us this morning, your everlasting, perfect, never-failing word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, that you would fill my words, and that you would fill all of our hearts you would apply the truth of the gospel of Jesus to every area of our lives. That you would help us now as we look at your word and learn from it, that you would be the teacher. That you would show us the greatness of Christ. Show us the blessedness of our calling in him. And for any that may not know you, that they may come to know you today as their great Lord, as their great Savior, as their great coming King, and the one who has redeemed them from sin. Help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. A little bit of background concerning the epistle to the, first, to the Corinthians here by Paul. Um, this was written by the Apostle Paul, um, probably in the mid-50s AD, so uh, you know, a good 20 or so years after the gospel, uh, after the gospel had happened, after Jesus had, had lived his perfect sinless life and died at the cross and rose again. Um, Paul is, has established the church at Corinth. Um, this is what we call 1 Corinthians, but is actually a part of a series of letters between the Corinthian church and Paul. Um, um, so uh, if you look at the, the Corinthians, I, I think that what we'll see, um, particularly in one of the larger epistles from the Apostle Paul, uh, has to do much with a lot of the problems that were going on in Corinth. Um, a lot of the things that Paul felt he had to address very specifically, and in some cases, kind of aggressively. Um, this is one of, the, uh, one of the letters of Paul that we look to, and when we read the first beginnings of it, the greeting and the thanksgiving, um, we don't see Paul commending the Corinthians for much of anything. If you look at the thanksgiving um, listed here in uh, verses 4 through 8, you will see the work of God that God has done in the church in Corinth. You might look at Philippians and see Paul say things like, I, I, I thank my God every time I remember you because of your, and then going through a list of wonderful things about the Philippian church. This doesn't happen with Corinth. And I want to say that because the reason that I, I landed on this passage is it, it's a hard place because when I preach, I want to preach God's word and preach Christ in it in a context of people whom I, I, I know and who I, how I can best um, build you up in the gospel. But I don't really know you that well. 
you know, to be completely honest. So uh, it, made, it made for a, a difficult thing to, to try to consider putting together a message. Um, but ultimately it comes back on the truth that this is God's word and this is something that he, I know, has been working in my heart, not only in the past uh, two weeks or so, but even before, even really in the last six months of my life, even the last year of my life, and truly the whole of my life in Christ, um, this passage has been true. Corinth as a city was a bustling mess of a city. Um, there were all sorts of different people from all sorts of different places. Um, so it kind of made Corinth this sort of um, anti-example of what heaven is going to be. You know, heaven is going to be this place where we go to meet God, to know him face to face, even as we are fully known, Paul says, to enjoy Christ forever, to give him the praise that is due his name. But we will go as a part of the body of Christ that is far more diverse and brought from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Something far more than we could ever possibly imagine. And we will gather with all of God's people from all of time to worship Him in this wonderful collection, this beautiful bride of Christ. And Corinth, which really, there was, there was a phrase that people would use. They would use the word uh, Corinthianize. And to Corinthianize something means to send it to the devil that Corinth was a despised place in the minds of many people. Um, for many of the Greeks, it wasn't Greek enough for them, and for many of the Jews, it wasn't Jewish enough for them. Um, it was, it was a, a, an epicenter of meetings of merchants and tradesmen and, 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 a, and a whole mess of different kinds of people, and it was despised for a lot, of the, a lot of the things that was done there. But truly, in the church in Corinth, God would reverse that standard and make his beautiful bride. And it, is, it goes... It's an important thing for us to note. In verse 2, Paul writes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. These Corinthians who, if you read this letter, you can see very quickly, they had a lot of really crazy issues too. Not even just typical church stuff. There's some stuff in there that Paul says, there's sin in your midst that isn't even named among the church of God. And yet, Paul calls them saints. Holy ones. Set apart for God. So wherever we come from today, that is our launching pad. That is where, if our faith is in Christ, we, like the Corinthians, are in Christ, and we are set apart for him. This theme of calling the weak that we'll see in verses 26 through 31 is truly a theme you see in the whole of Scripture. You can pick any of your favorite Old Testament heroes and see Moses and Gideon and anyone, pretty much, that God would choose in the Old or New Testament. Uh, many of them. Jeremiah is probably my favorite one when he says, don't send me to speak. I am only a youth. I can't do that. And God doesn't say to him, Oh, Jeremiah, you don't even know the potential that's really in you. You don't know how good you really are. I just need to pat you on the back a little bit and tell you to go off and do the thing. That's not what God says at all. He says, Don't tell me you're only a youth. I will put my words in you. It's not about what Jeremiah or Moses or Gideon or Abraham did or who they were or even what they knew. It was about who they knew and that person, God, who would speak through them. It's a great encouragement when you're sermon prepping. It's a great encouragement. I've never had a time where I've preached and I've thought, I've got this down. And I'm thankful for that because I know that that's a stumbling block in some cases. But to be completely honest, for me, that if, if I don't, I, I find myself so often wanting to be confident in what I can do. And God never grants that to me. Praise God. He only leaves me to desperately trust in him. And that goes beyond preaching. That goes every day of my life. If I'm to represent Christ, I can't do that on my own power whatsoever. But God calls the weak, and he calls them on purpose. So let's jump right in here into verse 26. I've broken this down into three sections, um, if you kind of want to follow along in your mind or on paper, um, how, however is best for you. Um, this first thing, uh, just looking at verse 26 by itself, to see God's call to us in our weakness. So let, let's look at this again. The first thing he says in this section, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
So three things that we can see there we'll talk about in a minute that we may look at for our importance. And God says, yeah, not many of you. So consider your calling, friends. Did God call you because you're something special? Or because you're very wise? Or because you're very powerful? Or renowned? You're of noble birth? You're important? When you were called to believe on Christ for salvation... You are called to turn from your sins, to be born again by the Spirit of God, to follow Christ, and all on the basis of the good news of what He's done, only on the cross. In Christ alone are we brought to God and brought into right standing with Him. He lived, He died, and rose again as a substitute for us. You know, as a teacher, never wanted to have a substitute. You know, it, we had this joke that you, you don't... I'm sorry, I was a teacher for five years in, in middle school. Um, not when I was in middle school. I taught middle school for five years. I was really good at my... Just kidding. Um, never wanted to have a sub. Never wanted to hand your class over to someone else and trust them with it for even a day. The work that you put into taking a day off is not worth taking the day off. You only do it if you absolutely have to. And you go and you stay up, I mean, there's a good chunk of the night, and you look over your sub notes over and over again, and you realize, I don't know that I've told everything to this person yet that they need to know, and what if this happens? And inevitably, something always happens. Every time I see, well, I couldn't find this, or so-and-so did this, or whatever it might be, it never goes perfectly. Christ came in on our behalf because he absolutely had to. He had to because he had to obey the command of his Father. He had to because if he wanted us to be his church, his bride, there was no other way. And the reason that we know there was no other way is because Jesus himself even asked in the garden. Do you remember? If there's any other way, let this what pass for me? This cup, the cup of God's wrath he had to face on our behalf. What we deserved, he took upon himself as the perfect substitute. You know, there's great joy to be found in salvation when we we realize that we bring nothing to the table. Nothing at all. You know, when you, when you have to move, the, if you ask somebody for help, maybe the first question you might hear is, are you packed up? Right? That's the, if, if you're asked to help somebody move, that's the first question you have to ask, right? Are you packed up? Are we going to be loading a truck or are we going to be packing your stuff? And, you know, and then you understand the length of time that it'll take to move. Jesus meets us from the beginning of our need to the end of our need. He doesn't ask us, okay, well, yeah, I can save you, but what have you done so far? What's, what's already been put into action here? What do you bring to the table? What makes you a good candidate for salvation? Nothing. 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 In Christ alone. And there's great joy to be found in that because we know that God does not look at us and call and choose us, which we'll see those words repeated here, choosing three times in this passage. God does not call or choose us because we're anything special. It would be very easy for him to call the special, the wise, the strong, the important. But truly when he sees us all in our sin, as we all are, the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who is wise enough, strong enough, important enough. None of us. We are all under the wrath of God. And so when God meets us from the beginning to the end of our need in Christ, there's a great joy for us in realizing the truth of that. So theologians disagree on this idea of um, election. And the camp that I subscribe to largely uses the term unconditional election. And without turning into a huge theological lesson here, it's suffice to say that unconditional means that there were no um, terms or conditions to God's choosing of those whom he would choose. Make sense? He did not say, I'm going to choose everybody who's sitting on this side of the church, and then some people that are sitting in the back over here. He didn't do that. It was unconditional. There was no prerequisite need in God's election whatsoever. That's unconditional election. I think that that best describes even what we'll see in this passage here. And and most certainly as we consider the gospel of grace, we can't consider that God even would be willing to look into the future to see one's response and therefore say, I choose him because I know when he sees Jesus, he'll appreciate him for who Jesus is. Praise God that he doesn't do that. 
18 years of my life sitting in a pew thinking I know Jesus. Thinking I know him because I'm good enough or because I'm smart enough or because I'm important enough. I had all those great reasons in my mind growing up. Praise God he doesn't look at me and say, no, not him. We don't know who God chooses. He doesn't, he doesn't lay out a, a platform for us to, to, to stand on and to look at, here's how I know someone's chosen by God, because there is none. There is nothing. God chooses whom he chooses. He's the maker. He can do whatever he wants. So consider that part of your calling. Not based on good works, and not even based on a knowledge that that person will respond rightly to the death and, le- and resurrection of Christ. He does not welcome those who come seeking to get a leg up or from him or to, to help to, to make the rest of their way to God on their own. That's a huge, huge fallacy. A lot of the times we can um, see that people believe that they might be right with God. And if you ask them just straight up, like, well, what makes you right with God? They may go through a list of things that they know or do or say that makes them right with God. But truly, none of that matters. What matters is, is if we've trusted in Christ entirely. Jesus isn't even a, a reset button upon which we are given a clean slate and a second chance to make, be made right with God. We're made right with God at the cross. When Jesus said it is finished, it was finished. He doesn't start us over, he starts us anew. So that famous verse, Galatians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. The old is passed away, and behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ today, you are new, and that's what he's called you to. You know, in thinking about our, our need to be made right with God, and, and how we think in terms of even human relationship, and, and if my wife and I have had a, a disagreement, which we never have, but if we were to have a disagreement, um, I might think that I need to do a certain set of things that I know will make her happy with me, right? Right, husbands? Right? Don't leave me alone on this, right? You want, there's things that you consider that this will make my wife happy and then things will be made right. Well, the truth is, though, that if we apply the truth of the gospel even to our marriages or to our friendships, to neighbors, to relatives, whatever relation, human relationship we have, we see that my problem is not that I need to fix the problems that I have as my old self. I need to embrace the new self that I am. So, one more um, teacher illustration. I despised report card day so much. And it wasn't just because I was often up late in turmoil over the terrible grades of some certain students and just praying that there was something that I missed that I could bump them up from a D minus to a C, you know, or D plus to a C minus. It wasn't just because of that. Because my students inevitably every quarter would come to me wanting to fix their perceived problem. A letter less than an A. None of my students were happy with just a B. And that wasn't because they were all that great of students. But they only felt that they did well enough if they got an A. Which, you know, shoot for the stars, right? Often to them the solution was an error. They were hoping that, well, did you grade that thing that I turned in? Or could I retake that test? Or could I, re- could I do extra credit? And after five years of teaching, I had totally done away with redoing extra work. You know, as a teacher, my goal wasn't primarily to educate students, although that was my job and on paper. And I can say that now because I don't work there anymore. <laughs> but um, my goal primarily was to show them the gospel. And, and to be faithful in the, in the small things of grading and, and all that kind of stuff was important, but it was secondary. So I would do away with redoing work and extra credit. And unfortunately, lazy and careless students with low scores would only ever be able to rise above when they realized their need for a serious change. Kindly, I would ask them questions of how much did you study? When did you study? Uh, did you prioritize well? Did you ask me or your fellow classmates for help? And until I could see it in their eyes that they needed to overcome who they were and through the Spirit become a new God-honoring student, there wasn't going to be a change. I learned a greater depth of my own sin problem with this as well. I think that even in walking in grace, trying to walk in grace day by day, I will find myself putting my head on my pillow and saying, is God happy with me? I read my Bible. I talked to somebody about Jesus. You know, and going through this list of thinking... God's happy with me because these things have happened. But that's my old self, applying everything else I understand of the world to my relationship with God. And God's relationship with his people doesn't work that way. 
I can put my head on my pillow and say, God's happy with me because of Christ. He's called me to a calling regardless of my wisdom, regardless of my strength, and regardless of my importance. We may easily find ourselves applying our logic to God that in my weakness, there must be something there. You know, I, I think even in, in school, we would often find people saying, you know, well, I know that in somewhere hidden in the mess of that student, they are a great, smart, blah, 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 blah. And, and the problem was, was that you know, we couldn't always get to that little kernel in, in a year, you know, or even in two years. We taught seventh and eighth grade together. Um, we couldn't always get to that kernel. Uh, the truth is, is that God calls us in our weakness, not because there's a hidden skill or trait or goodness that we simply need to access, but because in us, he wishes to make us completely brand new. So that famous song says, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? These for sin cannot atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So here's the three things of greatness that Paul addresses. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you, according to worldly standards, not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So these three things, we can take that noble birth and, and that being something to, to just kind of cross our cultural bridge there, noble birth may have had more of an importance at the time of the writing of this letter than it does for us here today in Lima, Ohio. Right? We probably don't all wake up in the morning and say, I am so proud to be part of the Vion clan. You know, and my great ancestors who have done blah, 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 whatever it might be. We may not hold on to that noble birth so much. I think as a culture, we've shifted to you know, forward-looking much more um, than, than back during the New Testament time. So when we look at these three things, perhaps it might help us to consider wisdom, strength, and importance. Okay? And that importance just being our value based simply on our identity. You know, not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were those who the world would look at and say, that person's important just because they're important. You know, this is essentially what we do with celebrities, right? We kind of forget whether they can sing or whether they can act or whether they can, you know, juggle or whatever it is. And we just say, they're important because they are fill in the blank with whoever your favorite celebrity is. And if you have a favorite celebrity, then, oh boy. Be careful. <laughs> so uh, we have wisdom to start. And the Greek culture valued wisdom above anything else. Your head knowledge, your understanding of philosophy and how the world works and, and, and all the, the, the metaphysical elements of the universe were, were far above almost anything else you could achieve. Wisdom was a big thing for Greek culture. Strength as well. Um, the biggest picture of strength that I kind of picked to, to look at was the Roman Empire. In their minds, they had conquered the world. They ruled the world. The Roman Empire was from here to there. And the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was this great fruit of the strength of the Roman Empire. So living in the midst of that, you have that as your, as your standard of strength. And, and that you, as a, particularly if you're a Roman citizen, would say, I am a Roman citizen. And that might have to do with your identity, but it may also apply to how you consider your strength, your ability, whatever that may be. And then lastly, again, noble birth or importance is, again, your value based simply on your identity. And the truth is, is that Paul doesn't say, no one who has these things can become a Christian. He says, there's not many of you who, who could boast in these three elements. Um, some did come from these things. But if we have come from these things, and if we hold tightly to those things, we have to let go. Paul says in Philippians that he's considered all things as loss compared to knowing Christ. And knowing Christ, again, not compared to the wisdom I found in Christ and how great of a scholar I am, or the power that I have in preaching effectively and casting out demons, or the, noble, the importance that I have as being born again as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say that. He says, in comparison to knowing Christ, everything else is loss, is to be done away with as nothing. The point is, not many come with this kind of mindset, come with this kind of um, importance or strength or wisdom. God isn't interested in those who, from the world's perspective, have these things. Having them doesn't disqualify you, but they do nothing for us in the relationship to Christ. They do nothing for us. If you came to Christ quickly, or if it took you years, when you came to Christ, when you were born again, you were 
you came to Christ and were born again exactly as everyone has ever been for the last 2,000 years. This may feel like letting go of something that we've worked for. It might be hard for us in some cases to let go of our value, of our importance, or of our wisdom, or our accomplishment. And perhaps we may think that letting go of those things takes something away from us. And it does. It takes a lot away from us. It takes almost the us out of who us are. Who we are. uh, When we lay those things down. But it indeed is freedom to be born anew in Christ by the Spirit of God and to walk daily by the Spirit, not by our own ideas of importance. So, next section here, verses 27 to 29. Um, this having to do with God's choice. And I know there are some Charles Spurgeon fans, maybe? Yeah? couple nods. Well, Charles Spurgeon fans wouldn't jump up and go like this or anything, so I shouldn't expect that to happen. But I am one, and I would. I would yeah, okay. So um, I, I read Spurgeon's, I, yeah, this is doomed to sermon prep, is reading Charles Spurgeon's sermon on the passage that you're preaching, right? Because you certainly don't want to just sit there and say exactly what he said. So I'm only going to say about a half a page of what Spurgeon said. But I'm saying that it was him, so I'm not, I'm not taking it for myself. Um, so regarding God's choice, look at 27 through 29, and then we'll, we'll see what Spurgeon had to say. In verse 27, he says, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Spurgeon points out the backwards-seeming nature of God's choosing the weak. And I'll spare you my Spurgeon um, imitation. I'll just read it as me. (laughs) Spurgeon says, Observe that while it is strange, it has a peculiarity about it. It is directly contrary to human choice. Man chooses those who would be most helpful to him. God chooses those to whom he can be the most helpful. We select those who may give us the best return. God frequently selects those who most need his aid. If I choose a friend, the tendency is to him because of a certain serviceableness that there may be in him to myself, that is, in the selfishness of man. But God chooses his friend according to the serviceableness which he himself may render to the chosen one. It is the very opposite way of choosing. We select those who are best because they are most deserving. He selects those who are worst because they are least deserving. That's so his choice may be more clearly seen to be an act of grace and not of merit. I say it clearly contrary to man's way of choosing. Man selecteth the most beautiful, the most lovely. God, on the contrary, seeing the blackness and filthiness of everything which is called lovely, will not select, select that which is called so, but takes that which even men discover to be unlovely and makes it beautiful with the beauty which he putteth upon it. Strange choice. Is this the manner of men, O Lord? God loves us in the depth of our wickedness. He sees us exactly for who we are. We might be able to look at other people and say, this person will accept me because they know this about me. God knows everything about you. And in Christ, you are accepted in the beloved. Amen? And he chooses us contrary to the way the world may choose. And if God so does with people, how should we live amongst each other? God loves us in the depth of our wickedness and chooses contrary to how we would expect. Could we truly embrace the love of God if we do not embrace our weakness and lean wholly on Him? Could we really know what it means to be loved by God if we do not come to Him in weakness? If we do not lay down all of our strengths and wisdoms and powers and importance and simply say, Lord, here I am. Show me your love. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The goal of God in calling whom he does is to reverse the standard of the world. It's God's choosing that shames. It's not, the, it's not those who are listed here, the foolish and the weak and those who are not, that are meant to go out and shame those who are not, but it's God's choosing that is meant to shame. 
Okay, And we see that in the Old Testament. Think about David. When Samuel goes to Jesse's sons, and he says how many times? I imagine he said it to every one of them in his head. He was like, here, I must most certainly be standing in front of the, the anointed of the Lord. And the Lord says, nope, 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 nope. And then, yeah, this one over here that you didn't expect, right? Um, it's not that David was meant to think much of himself because he was chosen by God. But it is that act of choosing that confounds those who are opposite to the chosen. So again, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong and the low and despised and things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So you should look at the progression of this because we have two words that are repeated twice. We have the choosing, God chose, God chose, God chose. And then the purpose of it, the word is repeated again, to shame, to shame, to shame. So it's this downward motion. And if you want to look at the Greek sometime, it's kind of interesting, but there's a downward motion with this word shame that ultimately gets brought down to where he says, to bring to nothing. So the foolish shame the wise. Those who, um, the, those who are weak, shame the strong. It's this downward movement to where eventually they will be, in the end, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. God's goal is to, in part, is to eliminate all boasting before him. And this is indeed the whole purpose of sin, right? To create a boast in ourselves. Go all the way back to Genesis. And the serpent says to Eve, you know... God doesn't want you to eat from the tree because he knows that you'll be like him. And then Eve and Adam both agree, I would like to be like God. God's the coolest person I know. That's not a bad desire. But it's warped because it then turns into, I will also be admired as God and I will hold the place and the position of God. I will no longer just simply be in his image. I will be like him on the same level. And that is where sin comes. And so even from the garden to the end in Revelation, God's goal in stamping out sin is to remove this boast of humankind. Uh, it's interesting, I've had some conversations with some of my non-Christian friends in this past week. And some of my friends who don't know Christ behave aggressively against those who know Christ. Um, very aggressively. Uh, there's some, I mean, sometimes I'm just, whew, okay. Um, their goal is not simply to relieve themselves of the burden of being made right with God, but is to um, tear it from the hands of those who trust that they are made right with God. Um, they're not satisfied, and this isn't every atheist that you mean, but many of my friends I've found to be this, in this aggressive nature of saying, I'm going to see to it that you have your faith destroyed. Even this morning, I was reminded by one of my non-Christian friends to um, make sure that I preach to everyone so not everyone goes to hell. Remember Ezekiel 33, my atheist friend told me this morning as an encouraging word, and I thanked him for it. Um, so anyhow, one of my, one of my friends, um, in, in talking about the Bible, and you know, goes through the typical thing of you can't use the Bible to explain the Bible, um, and then I said simply, well, the problem is, is what if the Bible's right? What if it's true? And then he shared with me a very funny anecdote, um, a picture of a napkin that said, this is the napkin. It is the only truth and the only right. And it is this because the napkin has said so. Thus saith the napkin, something like that. I mean, that's funny, right? You gotta, you gotta admit, that's kind of funny. And we know where he's going with that to say, look, you could say that this book makes claims about itself, and you could say that this napkin makes claims about itself. That's true. We can, and I don't know that there are many people who follow the words of a napkin, but we follow the history of a 2,000-year-old message that has not died, but has only grown, and has only been verified by those who have heard it, believed it, and met Jesus. So let me encourage you, if you have non-Christian friends, first of all, if you don't have non-Christian friends, you should get some. But if you do, and you're concerned about, you know, maybe they're really, really aggressive. And this truth is, is that I have friends that I will tell you that if I go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, I'm going to lose. I just know it. And that's because I don't spend every waking moment trying to destroy atheism. But they spend every waking moment trying to destroy Christianity. My purpose in holding those friendships is to get past the Facebook conversations and the text messages to a face-to-face -face conversation where I can say, how are you doing? I 
I'd really like to buy you coffee sometime. Can I tell you more about this Jesus that I know? The truth is that you can't argue with somebody who says they know Jesus. You really can't. In Revelation, it says that the saints overcome the world by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their what? Testimony. What God has done in their lives. That is what we use. We're called to testify and be witnesses of what God has done. Apologetics is great, and they're great things to learn that can help us defend the truth of the Bible. But when it comes down to your, your friendships and your one-on-one relationships and conversations that you may have, your testimony is going to be far more powerful than in a, a convincing argument. So removing of boasting, verse 29, so that, this is the purpose, no human being might boast in the presence of God. The word is actually flesh. We're in our ESV, we, I think many of us use the ESV here. Uh, it says human being, but the, the literal translation is flesh, which is just kind of a fun thing to read it in that text and realize that's what we are, you know? How, who are we to boast before the God of the universe? We are a cre- created thing. You know, and, and Paul says, can the thing who is, that is made say to its maker, why have you made me this way? That's outrageous. God's goal is to eliminate the, so that no flesh might boast in the presence of God. There's a right place for us to bring ourselves low and say, I'm nothing. It's good. It's good because that's where God comes in and says, you're right, but now in Christ, you are mine. I use this illustration all the time. And if you ever hear me again, you'll probably get sick of it by the time I say it the third time. I have a daughter, two and a half. I know that's not that impressive because I only have one, but I only have one. <laughs> um, I only have one right now. I have another on the way, but I love my daughter. And when I held her for the first time, you know dads and moms and grandparents and aunts and uncles, you just turn to jello instantly. There is no strength left in you at all. There is no pride. There's no nothing. I mean, my, I fell to the floor pretty much, and I think the doctors were concerned that the baby might fall too. Um, but I loved her from the moment that she came into the world. And I still, I love her more every day. But in one sense, I could never love her more than I have in that very moment that I first held her in my hands. She was a little thing too. She was just like this big. And now she's like this big. She won't stop. But why do I love her? What great thing did she do or say or think that made her so special to me? Nothing. The reason that she's so loved by me is because she is my daughter. And that is it. And parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, we know this love that is unconditional. That our our children can go off and do the most terrible thing. They can wander off with all of our money and we can stand from afar looking for them and the minute we see them turning, turning around to come back, we run after them. Such that, you know where I'm alluding to here, the prodigal son, right? And he says, I've got this great speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And when he comes to his father and his father throws his arms around him, And the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even get to finish his speech before the father says, throw a robe on him, put sandals on his feet, put a ring on his finger. This, my son was dead and he's alive again. That is the love of God for us. Not because of anything that we are, but in our weakness, in the simplicity of being his, being his chosen, being his called, and being his bride in Christ. Our culture doesn't seem to miss an opportunity to boast, um, even at things that are genuinely amazing. This past week was the 50th anniversary of Neil Armstrong landing on the moon, right? That's pretty cool, right? Very, very cool. I know a lot of people in our world don't think that it really happened, but, you know, if it did, that's a really cool thing, you know? So I'm listening to one of my other favorite guys, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, preach on this on verse 31, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but he uses the illustration because at, at the time of his sermon, um, Russia had just launched the first man into orbit. And it was so funny because I was thinking, boy, what a great illustration. I wish I had something like that that I could use. And sure enough, on the Google homepage, Neil Armstrong, 50th anniversary. It's pretty exciting. Thanks, Google. We know you're listening. Um, so... So this amazing thing, we don't forget to boast in our great accomplishments. 
someone launched through our atmosphere and set foot on the moon and said, this is one small step for what? For man and one large step for mankind. What's amazing is that we say these things, we, we do these things and we say, look at what we've done. Perhaps for no other reason than to beat the Russians. But the one God calls us to boast in surpassed far more than the atmosphere, but death itself. Christ overcame death at the cross and bought us eternal life in him. So in thinking about this purpose of, of God eliminating our boast, um, Psalm 5.5 came to mind, which is a very difficult passage. Um, it's well known for the, the latter part of it here, and we're gonna, I'm going to give you a couple of resources uh, to look into if you're curious about this issue. Um, but Psalm 5.5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. First of all, the boastful, the thing that they want to do is stand up. No one who wants to boast wants to do it sitting down. And so the illustration is clear. You can't stand before God in your boasting. And then how does God feel about sin? Is it true that God tells us that we, we well, certainly, you know, we apply to ourselves more often that we are called to love the sinner and hate the sin, right? But is that true of God when he says things like, I hate all evildoers? That's hard. Two resources. Desiring God has a series called Ask Pastor John, where John Piper answers hard questions like this, and you can Google that one. It's very easy. Um, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin, uh, Ask Pastor John. Um, another one is a, a, a short 15-minute podcast I listened to um, on the Gospel Coalition website with Don Carson, um, and that's titled similarly. But suffice it to say, we may think God loves everyone, and he does. He very much does. For God so loved the what? world that he gave his only son. Okay, there is love from God for his creation. He does love us. He does love us even in our sin. He loves sinners and he hates sinners. In a mysterious way, God reaches out to those who are his enemies with love. And unless this verse is true, then he's just reaching out to his friends or his acquaintances or to his distant relatives or whatever it might be. But no, Remember where we are in our sin. We are enemies of God. In order to better stand in awe of his great love for us, his great choosing for us, we throw away our boasting, we throw away our sin, we turn from it in order to better stand in awe of his great love. We have to see how truly far we were or perhaps are from him if we don't know Christ. We are in Christ, verses 30 and 31 now at the end, we are in Christ because of God's choice. Here we find what the Lord has for us when we lay down our wisdom, power, importance. Throw all these things away and we might say, well, what is it that I get in return? What do I have to look for? The disciples ask this question. You know, we have left everything to follow you. What will we have? This is a legitimate question that we should ask. What is it that God is offering us? He puts us in Christ. Because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. To delve into what that means, look at the book of Romans and see Paul's discussion on how we who were in Adam were dead in our sins because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Before we even breathed a breath or said a word or did a thing, we were in Adam and the stain of sin had reached to us. And in Romans, Paul goes on to say, what Adam did at the tree is overcome and overwhelmingly undone by what Jesus did at the tree at Calvary. Jesus at the cross becomes to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that the last part may be true, that our boast may not be in anyone but in the Lord. Um, here's a questionable illustration. I had to ask the elders if I could use a LeBron James illustration, because I'm from Northeast Ohio, so I'm sorry if that happens, but he's just, it's just too easy. It's, it's the low-hanging fruit for sermon illustrations. So here it is real quick. Um, LeBron loves a thing that he celebrates every week, and it's on Tuesday. What is it? Taco Tuesday, Taco Tuesday right? Have you seen this before? 
Taco Tuesday. It's this. It's it's really a funny thing if you want to look up um, his posts about it. But he celebrates Taco Tuesday at his house with his family. I just like to see him because I'm always like LeBron's house. What's that like? You know, that sounds really interesting. Um, he posts these ridiculous videos on social media as he celebrates on Tuesday night. This past week he had Taco Tuesday, but he had a special guest there. Um, another Taco Tuesday video was posted. He celebrated around the table with his kids. He panned his phone around and had everybody say, Taco Tuesday, and go to all of his kids. And then the last person he saw was Anthony Davis. Do you guys know who Anthony Davis is? If you don't, suffice it to say, good basketball player, okay, who has just joined LeBron's new team, the Lakers in Los Angeles. He hasn't played a single game with him yet, but he was sitting at the table of the James's house celebrating Taco Tuesday. And when the phone came around to him, he said, Taco Tuesday, like everybody else. He was a part of the family in that moment. It was a big deal. He hasn't played a single game with LeBron yet. He was an opponent of LeBron. He was an enemy of LeBron. And not only did LeBron say, I'd really like to have you on the team with me so we can play basketball together, he said, come to my house on Taco Tuesday. That's a big invitation. Now here's the spiritual part to it. Hasn't played a game at all with him. LeBron looks at Anthony Davis and says, that's a guy that I want. And he chooses him because he's one of the best players in the world. Get him on my team. We're going to win championships if he comes. Contrary to that, the world works one way, God works another. Davis Davis was brought in based on his excellent performance on the basketball court. But imagine us who are in Christ are invited to a far grander feast than Taco Tuesday at the luxurious home of the Jameses. There's a song that we've been singing at church, at our home church, and at, at home as well by a songwriter named Sandra McCracken, if you're familiar with her. She says in the song, We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, We will feast and weep no more. Taco Tuesday is over Tuesday night. The feast in heaven never ends. I find myself in times when I long for Christ's return in the future more useful for his work right now. So long for that. Consider your calling not just for today, but to the future. What is it that God has for you? He has himself for you in heaven. In Christ we find what God has for us. Though we are weak, Christ becomes our wisdom. Weakened because of sin, Christ becomes our righteousness and our sanctification. Our new identity or importance is in our redemption in Christ. These are big words, righteousness. I always just take out the uch part of it and tell my students that it's rightness. It's being right with God. Um, Sanctification, being made more like Jesus, slowly but surely. We are transformed from one degree of glory to the next, day by day, as God is working in us. And then redemption is being bought back. When God chose us, he didn't just simply say, yeah, what's on the free aisle over here? What's, what's on the shelf marked free? No, he went and he gave the greatest cost. Us who are weak, we who are weak apart from him. He did not look to and say, well, they put in a pretty good effort. I'll go ahead and do the rest. There's nothing that we could have done. He called us in our weakness so that we could trust fully in him so that no one can boast in his presence. We ought to admit our weakness every day and trust that these things are provided for us in Christ every day. So here's the final purpose. We're not meant to just stop boasting in ourselves, but that the one who boasts would boast in the Lord. This doesn't disclude people who don't boast, because we all boast. We all do, even if it's just in your own heart. Maybe you have it really control, but really under control, but you might find yourself on a certain day thinking, I did that. As soon as I go like this in a few minutes... I'm going to be tempted to be like, yeah. Or I'm going to be tempted to be like, oh no, that was a disaster. Whatever it might be. But temptation to boast is always with us. It's always, it's never more than a step ahead. So the solution in the gospel is not stop boasting. It's stop boasting in yourself and boast in the Lord. The one who boasts must boast in the Lord. So Martin Lloyd-Jones in preaching this verse said, we proclaim who we are by what we glory in. You can tell me your name, where you work, where you live, and all that kind of stuff, but I don't know who you are until you start telling me something that you're really excited about. 
then I really know who you are. It's true of all of us. A test by the doctor to leave you with. Do you glory in the Lord? This is the difference between one who simply knows things of the faith and those who know Jesus, the one who glories in Christ. We boast in Christ in his incarnation and his simplicity, his simple life, his crucifixion even, the death of a criminal, undeserved, and then his resurrection. Look at the love of God for you in this passage, my friends. He called you. He chose you. He put you in Christ and gave this blessed position in him. Salvation is of the Lord. Uh, last thing I want to leave you with is a couple lines from a song by Isaac Watts. It's called, I Boast No More. It's an old hymn that was uh, revived in recent years, but he says, No more, my God, I boast no more of all the duties I have done. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. Now for the loss I bear his name. What was my gain, I count my loss. My former pride I call my shame and name my nail my glory to his cross. Yes, and I must and will esteem all things but loss for Jesus' sake. O oh, may my soul be found in him, and of his righteousness partake. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before thy throne, but faith can answer thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, my hope, my heart, my desire is to plead only what Christ has done to embrace my weakness, to know that apart from Jesus, I'm a condemned sinner. The wrath of God is upon me if I do not know you. Thank you that you sent Jesus to be my substitute, to take my place, so that I may be called in you, might be found in you. Lord, humble me. Humble my friends, Lord. We, we don't like being humbled. I know nobody does. Nobody wants to be brought low. We want to build up. We want to be encouraged. But bring us low so that we might be encouraged in who you are, not in who we are. Bring us low so that in due time you may raise us up and remind us the truth that we are called and chosen if we are in Christ that we can only plead what Jesus has done for us. Sink these truths into our hearts that we might better worship you, that we might better make you known in our midst, and that you may complete our joy in our hearts by rejoicing and boasting in the Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.